Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. So today I interviewed SoCal Cat. Ooh, also, Nate. I don't know why that just popped into my head. So Nate has a full-time, like, real adult job now. And not that his other job wasn't an adult job, but you know what I mean. It's like Monday through Friday, nine to five. So he probably is not going to be on as many episodes anymore, which is unfortunate. But hopefully if I record on the weekends or something, he can join me. But in case you guys are wondering where he is, that's why, because we typically record during the week. So anyways, hopefully we'll still be able to get him in sometimes on the weekends, but that's where he is. So anyways, I interviewed SoCal Cat, and we had a great a great conversation. She's so interesting. She now owns several rehabs in Laguna Beach. And she has a story that's pretty different from mine, like in ways she and I are really similar, which we say, but it's different from mine in that she was functional the entire time. She was drinking, but she always had a job and was like supporting herself. And she's another one that I got. I had the opportunity to ask like, so how do you know then if there aren't any of these external consequences, how do you know? that maybe it's gone too far. And just like the last woman that I interviewed, Mary Tilson, who similar situation, she had a great answer to that question. She has a pretty good answer to that question as well. And so I think you guys are gonna you know, get a lot out of this episode. So as always guys, let me know what you think and we will see you next week. So Kat, SoCal, Catherine. <laughs> Do you go by Kat or Catherine? Kat. Kat. Okay. All right. So you are the CEO, amongst other things, of Laguna Shores Recovery. So that's so that means your rehab is here in Laguna Beach. Yeah. Okay. Is it one of those like because Laguna Beach is so nice? Is it one of these like super? Is it fancy your rehab? Yeah, we actually we have three. One is overlooking the harbor in Dana Point, which oh is. My God insane. One is kind of a more like, guess, modest 6,500 square foot house in Laguna Niguel <laughs> and, <laughs> and Nellie Gale. So yeah, I mean, they're beautiful. Our whole, some of the best advice we ever got when we opened our facilities was don't spend a lot of money on the house. Okay. Uh, spend money on the staff. And so we were actually, our, and I'm, when I say we, I mean my uh, business partner, Alex, we started our facilities in 2018 in just like this tiny, not tiny, like regular 2,500 square foot house in Mission Viejo. And it's still my favorite house, you know, and since grown. And the landlord told us about 18 months ago at that house, hey, I'm actually going to give this to my daughter. She's kind of fallen on rough times. Is there a way that you guys can be out? And we're so bummed. But God always upgrades. <laughs> and there was just this insane house in Dana Point, right? Overlooking the harbor. I guess it used to be a house from another detox like years ago. So our neighbors don't love us already. But we moved in June of 2022. And um, it's been, I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, it's just the, one of the most beautiful. You walk in and it's all ocean. It's the entire, yeah, it's gorgeous. And That's it's like, cool. Yeah. So yeah, we're blessed. I think I actually know the house in Dana Point. Okay. I, it used to be a detox. Yeah. So I, I forgot about this story till right now. 
in like one of the height of my using days. So I was a heroin addict and I was always trying to get a hold of Suboxone or Subutex so I could detox, right? Like I was constantly trying to detox. I just needed the meds. And then what would end up happening is anytime I got arrested, the Suboxone was just a charge because I always had it on me, but it wasn't like, you know, I was like, no, 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 you know, I'll, I'll detox tomorrow. I got to wait my 24 hours before I take it. And the time's not right for that, whatever. And a friend of ours, this young kid who'd been staying with us off and on, went to detox, I think at that house, okay. and had no intention of getting clean. So he was tweaking his Subutech and collecting it for us. And my ex and I drove up there and he ran out of the house with a little baggie and traded us the chewed up Subutech. And we must have brought him something. I don't even remember what. And then he ran back inside the detox house. And it was like, it's near the water and you go down a long street. And then when you start to curve around the bend, is it right there? Yeah. Oh my God. That's it. That's totally it. Not when it was your detox, obviously, but when it was no, the other, this is what it was so- 2012 that this happened. Oh my God. I actually forgot about that until right now. That kid was crazy. Anyways, I hope he's okay now. He was super young. He was only like 19 years old or something. Of course he was staying with us and like getting cash. You know what I mean? So anyways, so, and then I also, and we'll get started with your story in just a second, but I was just listening to you, like I told you on another episode and you asked the guy something really interesting because he had been in rehab recently and you asked him, cause I've been thinking about this recently as well, this concept, you asked him if in his facility, he was able to keep his phone or if he had like a blackout period. Do you guys do a blackout period with cell phones? Yeah. Ideally we would do no phones, but it's very, when there's, you know, 5,000 other facilities within 10 miles of us, right? So we do three weeks blackout. Okay. Usually clients are only with us for four weeks. Okay. So, uh, and there's ways that you can earn privileges. And of course, like, they'll meet with a case manager. You know, some people have families. They want to FaceTime with their kids. There's always exceptions. But our goal is really, like, I mean, I believe that what you do in inpatient and in rehab directly translates to how you're going to apply yourself when you leave. So kids that come in, they jump in the steps, they're, you know, get a sponsor, they're totally on fire for the program. And usually, you know, that carries on, you know, but you can still be a rock star and get, you know, all the pluses and A's in rehab and then, you know, relapse on your way out the door. It's, it's kind of a a mess, but yeah, our goal would be to have no cell phones. That would be the goal. And the reason I ask is because I think a blackout is a good idea. And for those of you guys listening, if you're not familiar with what that is, typically when you go to rehab, or I, I guess I don't know about anymore, but when I was going, they always took your phone. You didn't get to have it at all. Like when I went to my first program, I didn't have it for the whole four months I was in residential. And then the last one I went to, they did let you keep your phone. And you know, cause you listened to the episode, my husband recently has been in and out of treatment and he went to one twice, like back to back, the same one. And they let him keep his phone. And he recently detoxed here and had sold his phone. And so he didn't have one for like a month. And he told me towards the end, cause he's actually now I was going to tell you this, he's got 33 days. Yeah. He's doing way better. He hasn't had that amount of time in a year, over a year. And I know that that's not a lot, but like, that's definitely it's progress and he got a new job. And so, but he said at the end of that period, he's like, I'm kind of glad I didn't have a phone because he wasn't able to like distract himself or look at things online or text anybody. And he'd been using for so long too. And this is, this is often the problem. He'd been using for so long. Connects would text him if they didn't hear from him. 
right. and be like, yo, you around? I got this and that, you know, and you're a week clean and still sick, you know? So like, I actually think the phone blackout thing is a good idea, but I know, like you said, now they're, the market is so saturated with detoxes and rehabs. And it's the last thing you want to do when you go in is turn over your phone. So I'm sure that that's like a competitive thing for you guys. Like, well, if I go over here, I get to keep my phone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I quickly learned that recovery and treatment are not the same. (laughs) That actually more often, you know, like the weird part is that we are in an industry where the person who's really sick is also the client. And so a lot of times, you know, what's in their best interest is not in the best interest of the business and vice versa. So it's, I mean, it's, I think that we do a really good job walking the line. um, And we've got some, like, I have now um, four business partners and because we've just grown and we're all in recovery. We're all in, you know, the program actively, but you know, like I, would scholarship like five people a month if I could. <laughs> and they are like, hey, the business, you know, like, and, and they very much keep me honest. And like, it's tough, though, the, you know, because I have this heart for, you know, helping people. That's why I got into the business. And then we see, you know, people make such poor decisions. And sometimes they're like, I'm leaving if I don't get this. And, you know, it's the best thing is like, get the fuck out then walk, yeah. right? Like you fucking homeless for a while, but as a business person, I can't say that. Right. And every sick circumstance is different. You know, it's, um, treatment. So like our program is very individualized because everyone comes in with, you know, a different story, you know, to just say no cell phones for three weeks is crazy. Some people have, you know, children, they have court, So that was also something that I'm, you know, very, I like, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm somewhat rigid and I like rules and, and, you know, just like regulations. And I came from a corporate background where that was very much the case. And then now, you know, we work in a house, right? Like boundaries, like we see our clients, you know, like before they go to bed, when they wake up, very blurred. And so it's just by the nature of it, been just an incredible learning experience, but also somewhat challenging because in, in the corporate world, you're like, this is professional, this is not. There is a clear black, white, like you don't wear shorts and flip-flops to a board meeting. <laughs> I mean, guess in Southern California, you do, some people, but you know, in the world of treatment, I think one thing that makes us so successful as a company is just our authenticity and that we have kind of blurred the boundaries. I mean, I, I go to the houses almost every day. I take, you know, I take clients on, on walks. You know, I really want to connect with them one-on-one because I want them to know, like, I'm just a normal person. You could have this life too. No, it's true. Treatment is so, I can't imagine how hard it is. I've never worked in treatment. I've just been to like a million rehabs, but I can't imagine how difficult it is. And like what you just said is so true. The lines get really blurred because you're so close when you've both been addicts and you have such like a heart for them. And it is case by case, like the massive difference between my husband going to treatment and when I was... I was homeless. I didn't have a job. I didn't even have a phone actually this by, you know, by the later times, it didn't really matter. He had like a high level executive job when he was going a few months ago and was like, I have to be able to check in and check my email. And so like one of the detoxes actually let him have access to it once a day so that he could kind of, you know, and, and it is, you know, it is kind of case by case basis. But I thought it was interesting that you asked, you know, that you asked Dan that question. Know, what his experience was, because I've been thinking about that a lot too. So let's talk about how you got 
to where you are right now, which is owning a treatment center. Are you from Southern California? Are you from Laguna Beach? Nope. I am actually a Colorado native. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado, like a suburb of Denver called Centennial or Aurora and like two amazing parents. I like kind of like you, I, your parents sound freaking awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they are. I shared that your family, you know, they were two whole individuals and they, you know, gave you this constant message that you're whole in who you are. You don't need anyone. My parents were amazing, but they didn't, they were not that just self-reflective. They, I mean, they've never really done any work on themselves. And, you know, they both grew up in a military, both of them military homes. So we didn't talk about really anything. Like when feelings came up or like really big things came up, it was kind of, you know, if, if it's not talked about, it doesn't exist. And as an addict and alcoholic, you know, I, I believe that this is genetic, you know, on both sides of my family. And I'm a very sensitive individual. (laughs) And so I had all these feelings as a little girl and I was not really, wasn't really given a place to talk about them or to express them freely. And I just remember having tantrums and just feeling so unheard and unseen as a little girl. Again, my parents did the best they could and I can't, they both worked. They, they gave me this, I never wanted for anything, but I remember like a specific scenario when I too had, you know, some, some weird stuff with eating. I was in fifth grade and my best friend's mom caught me throwing up and she said, we're going to have to tell your parents And I really just remember having no reaction to that because they, they wouldn't really, I didn't know how they would respond, but I knew that I wouldn't get in trouble, that it it would probably be dismissed. It was kind of, um, they, what, what did happen? Did she tell them? Yeah, we had like a meeting and my parents just kind of looked at each other and like sighed. And we're like, well, you know, we'll talk to her. And then I think like we ended up going to a psychologist a few months later, but I was just having these like crazy outbursts. I was very hormonal. You know, I just have a lot of feelings. I'm an intense person. I totally understand now looking back that like I have been so uncomfortable in my own skin even as a little girl, even going into middle school, which is such an awkward stage, that when I was finally offered the opportunity to numb out through alcohol, it was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I could have used this. You know, what? This is, this is what I've been looking for, right? This is allowing me to shut all of this off and quiet my heart and giving me an opportunity to just be amongst you guys and just be one of, you know, the people that can just like, go through life. And it seems like I I just constantly felt like I missed like a class or something like a a course of how is everyone so comfortable in their own damn skin? Like, why am I? Why do I just feel crazy all the time? How old were you when you first drank? Uh, I would like sneak beers and do like that kind of stuff. But like the first time I got totally drunk, it was actually that same best friend whose mom growing up. Her parents went out of town and her brothers um, were older and had a like a cake party and they were in high school and we were in middle school at that time. And they were like, you guys can stay over here, but you need to 
stay in her room. There's nobody that can come down. Like you girls can, and there was like four or five of us that stayed the night. I mean, we had to lie to our parents, do all of the things to like make sure that we could, you know, have this huge night with, you know, her brother and his friends. And he finally started bringing up the red solo cups with beer and the first time like that I could feel the effects of that alcohol, I was like, I mean, Bill says it perfectly. Like I had arrived. <laughs> like, I was like, this is it, you know? And I start to feel okay in my own skin. And before you know it, like we did not stay in her room. You know, we start to go down, mingle with upperclassmen. <laughs> um, it was one of the best nights of my life. I had pomp. I was funny. I danced. You know, we had this incredible, like, just, I mean, time that the next morning the girls, and I'm, I definitely got sick. You know, I drank to oblivion my first time that I could. And the girls that I was there with were mortified the next morning. Like, oh my gosh, this is, I can't believe I did what I did. And oh my gosh, what if my parents find out? And there's all this guilt and shame. And I'm, literally like looking around for more alcohol in the house. Like, what do you mean this? I don't ever want this to end. This is it. Like I finally put, somebody took an oxygen mask and put it on me. Like my black and white world just went to color and I don't know what y'all are talking about, but this is the best night of my life and I don't ever want it to end. So before we continue there, I have a question about, so in fifth grade, you were throwing up, you said, how did you know to do that? Like, did you see somewhere what bulimia was or did you have an instinct because that's pretty young to know that you could binge and purge do you know where you got that or where that came from I honestly have no idea my mom has always kind of been pretty into image and exercise and like I remember you know she would smoke cigarettes and be on the exercise bike in our basement <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome yeah <laughs> I just had a glimpse of like, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm picturing this like 80s, like dark wood basement and your mom, whatever she looks like in like a leotard and spandex smoking a cigarette. Like yeah. that's awesome. yeah. that's so cool. I hope you have a picture of that somewhere. Probably not. But okay. So, so some idea of like, maybe like disordered feelings around yeah. age. And so maybe from there, it kind of arose. Okay. Just kind of interested in that. Okay. So day after you guys get hammered, you're looking to drink more. What does it look like from there? Like how often do you start drinking? How did you find more? Where does your path go from there? Well, we start hanging out with upperclassmen and then it just kind of progresses to like, I find friends whose parents are okay with us drinking at their house. Somehow I start smoking like weed very, a very young age, like 14, I think, or 13 by hanging out with upperclassmen, you know, um, and it just kind of progressed. And I think my family knew, my parents knew, but they weren't, it was like that whole denial thing. Like if I, if I don't actually admit that this is happening, it's not <laughs> right. And, you know, both my parents worked. One of the challenges was that my brother was, is four years older than me. And he got his girlfriend pregnant right before he was going to graduate senior year. Yeah. And it's just me and my brother. And he is like, my mom would never say there's a favorite, but she says there's a favorite. <laughs> like, 
she just she just like wanted my brother to be a doctor, an astronaut. He's, you know, incredibly good looking, very successful, always been an all-star athlete, had a like scholarship to the Colorado School of Mines, which is a very good engineering school. And you know, we didn't really talk about like relationships or like it was never like family time where we sat down and and we're like, oh, who are you dating? Because they just couldn't, they didn't really, I don't think, had the tools to talk about those things. And so my brother just basically came home one day and was like, hey, she's pregnant. And my mom at that time had just lost her mom. She had just passed away and they were very close. And so she like couldn't handle it. And so basically she just went into a pretty deep depression. This was right as I was going into high school and as my brother was leaving and my mom just, she would go to school. She was a high school teacher for special ed and she just really slept. The majority of, she'd get home at 3 p.m. and she would be in bed. And I mean, as a 14 year old girl, that's tough, right? I kind of need somebody. And I found cheerleading and gymnastics, which was, or it found me, which was really great. And I started to get super involved in that. But I also had this very addictive personality and substances and needed to still numb out and had a lot of stuff going on at home that I didn't really know how to, you know, just like work through. And so by this time I was in high school and I really um, was loving cheerleading and gymnastics. It gave me purpose. And it was like, I I found a fellowship and I found these girls, but there was still this part of me that couldn't stop this. Right. I loved cheerleading, by the way. I didn't make it in high school, but I did it in middle school. And not making it in high school is one of like the most devastating things in my life still. I'm actually really glad I didn't because it made me debate, which prepared me for a lot of things in life. I loved cheerleading. And in Georgia, it was like a really big deal. It was, you know, like the football player, like, you know, the athletes. What ended up happening with your brother? Did he marry the girl and go to college or not? Or what happened? Still went to college. He didn't. But that was actually like a huge blessing because my brother would be in college and she was local to us. Okay. She would drop the baby off and I would take my nephew And I was like, kind of had this like sad, empty, you know, felt just really lost. And I had this little guy now and he was like, he was my sidekick. I would take him to cheer. (laughs) I would take him to the pool. Like he gave me purpose. And then as a family, we like started to like really grow closer together around this. So he's 22. He's still in Colorado. Yeah. So, and I, he and I are actually like very close. Um, He and, and I are yeah, he's just, he's my little G for sure. So it still kind of worked out for your brother ultimately. He yeah. ended up, well, yeah. Like, okay, okay, yeah. okay. But I, it was just so, just not what my mom had planned, you know, really, and she didn't really have any tools. She had just gotten hit with her mom's death yeah. and yeah. this, and, you know, image is a really important thing to us. Like rather than buy like a quaint house my parents and my mom could have not worked she wanted a bigger house but better schools and you know which I I've so value and I know that you know she wanted the best for us and she she has her master's she works very hard she sacrificed a lot for us but you know her idea of like kind of what other people think is just so important yeah at that time too what year was that 1998 or okay. Yeah. Okay. 
So also people, you know, at that time, I mean, it might still be, I guess, if you're in high school, but especially at that time, getting someone pregnant in high school was like one of the worst things that could happen to a family image. You know okay. what I mean? Oh, so yeah. oh, so yeah. I can understand that. Okay. So you're cheerleading and you've got the group of, of girls that you're hanging out with, but you're still drinking and smoking weed. Yeah. And they, I was the, um, elected captain. So they voted me captain and I like really struggled with this double life that the book talks about. You know, I could very much be functioning and still have this like side, the side life. And I mean, cheerleading was everything to me. Like we, we were, even though we were in Colorado, not the South, like I had a coach that was very much um, wanted to change the whole image of cheerleading. So like we could not hold hands with a boy and she was a teacher at our school too. So knew everything. So like we could not hold hands with a boy wearing a uniform. Like if she, she said, if you were at a party and there was alcohol, you're, you're done. Like there was no tolerance. So I had to be real sneaky and, you know, girls were, they would stick up They Like people would talk, they would say things and the girls would stick up for me and be like, Nope, she wasn't there. I know. I know. They stuck up for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were yeah. going to tell me that's who turned you in. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Wow. I don't. They that's were, really cool. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so, but I mean, it was still just exhausting. My And I was really involved in DECA and debate as well. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I always like was an athlete, but also in like AP classes. And like you were saying, like, you know, like I'm, I mean, I'm smart. I'm, you know, like have always, but I never like could find like a group, right. I would be just enough. I always had a bunch of like side groups. Like I was the, you know, I love to be in the weight room, but I also loved math and science and, you know, was very involved in like future business leaders of America, FBLA and all of these other clubs and wanted to do it all. But I also was never really get let people get close, close. Like when people talk about having like very, very close friends, I didn't have that many of them. But that's also something I learned through AA is I wasn't really being in my authentic self. So it's very hard to let people in when you don't know who you are, right? And you're like constantly trying to like put up these walls. And like a lot of times, I I mean, I again, I had a great, great childhood. I loved my family, but I felt just because of the nature of alcoholism that I was in survival mode a lot, you know, just like constantly hiding or lying or having to put up this front, doing all of these things to just get through the fucking day, you know? I would always, I don't know if you did this. I don't know if if I've ever really talked about this. I so desperately wanted to be like a cool girl and I wanted things to be different about me. And I would, it's it's so embarrassing now because it must've been really obvious. But like, I remember doing this in elementary school, watching like a TV show or like, you know, even a cartoon or a movie when I was older, I would pick a character in the movie to like act like I would adopt their characteristics. Like when 90210 was a thing, I would just act like Kelly Taylor. And I was so not Kelly Taylor, like <laughs> not driving a BMW to school. I was not fucking homecoming queen. Right. At all. None of those things, but I like wanted to be. So I would act like Kelly Taylor or there was this girl in my high school that was like all the things I wanted to be. And I would even like write like her, I would adopt characteristics and then just like, 
it was like, if I would go to a party, it was like, I was watching myself in a movie and I would act like what I thought a cool person would act like. Did you do that? Is that kind of what you mean? Or what do you- kind of, Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's pretty introspective. I'm sure that I like wanted, I remember watching 90210 and daydreaming about, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I also think that 90210 and the character you connect with can sort of track like mental health because in high school, I really wanted to be Kelly Taylor. And then in college, I wanted to be Valerie which is very, very different because when everything in my life like took a dive and then I became like the dark side. And so then I wanted to be Valerie. So like that can, you know, and when I look back, I'm like, I wonder if somebody did a study about like 90210 and like the mental health of the women that watched or even, you know, some of the men that watched and like what character you identified with, I think that would be super interesting. But anyways. (laughs) Well, yeah. And you know, interestingly, uh, my parents kind of saw like I I was getting more and more reckless. Well, I had to hide my behavior, but like there were some nights where I would drive home and I was hammered and my mom would lose her mind and just tell me, you know, how are you going to make anything with your life? You're definitely not going to get into college with this type of behavior, you know, all of the things. And so I was searching, uh, certainly for something different. I, I did get accepted to university of Colorado, um, in Boulder and I was about to graduate high school and I met, um, somebody at a restaurant that I worked with and he, he was just different. You know, he was not really, wouldn't flirt with me really good looking and like very, there was something that he was just set apart. There was something different about him. And I just would, I would shamelessly flirt with him and talk about all these guys I'm hooking up with and all these things I'm doing. And he was not impressed. And so finally I was like, what is wrong with you? He's like, nothing. I just, I'm, I'm a Christian. I have no intent to be with somebody that's not, and I'm not impressed by any of that. And I was like, what does that mean? I didn't really know. Like I had gone to church a few times or we'd go to like Christmas and Easter, but never really was a personal relationship with, you know, your creator an important thing in my family. And so he started bringing me to church with him and turns out like his dad is basically the pastor or, you know, an elder there and they're very involved and I become a Christian right before I go to college. Okay. And I definitely had a transformation in my heart and in the way that I lived, I started to get involved with their church and he and I of course started dating and I had a true transformation. We got married. I got engaged on my 19th birthday. Oh wow. Yeah. And my parents were just like, "What on earth is happening? Like you were this yeah. And I have a became a Christian. Did you go through like a confirmation process and then get baptized or oh, you, oh, your heart felt like you became part of this yeah, mentality? Okay. Yeah. Just kind of accepted Christ and started to like turn away from all those other, those ways and just proclaimed like, okay, this is, I had never really known, like I just had, now I had conviction in my heart for like the behavior that I was participating in. Whereas before I was just like doing all these things, I knew it wasn't really right, but I didn't really, there was nothing in my heart that was like, Hey, this is not what I want. It just, I don't know. Now I felt like I was also kind of relieved because I was like, Oh, phew, like I can put all that behavior behind me. And my parents were 
just kind of mortified because they're like, what is happening? There's so much change. And now this man says he wants to marry her. And they were like, as long as she finishes college, let's just see where this goes. So we got married when I was 20. And I really wasn't drinking that much. There were a few nights that I got drunk in college and would just get obliterated with like classmates. And but what I started to do was actually redirect my energy in running. So I started running. um, And this is actually fairly common for alcoholics and addicts that are untreated. (laughs) We're either running from or running towards. I mean, I would I was insane. I would run hours like three to four hours a day at a Jack Russell. And she would hide under the bed when I got her leash out. Like she was like, like we're talking 20 to 23 miles, like insane. Just, gosh, yeah. But I stopped drinking and (laughs) I remember we would have dinner with his family or my family and they would bring over one bottle of wine and I would just like have that first few sips in my entire night was ruined because I was just thinking, oh, who's going to have the next? Like, okay, are they really going to throw that out? What would they notice if I open another bottle? And, you know, like all of the obsession, um, things that I didn't know that are, you know, triggered by alcoholism. Like I have this allergy that has me respond differently to alcohol that other people just don't have, right? They can put their drinks down with immunity. I have this now obsession that is just firing. And it got so frustrating for me that I stopped drinking completely because I was like, that is, I can't get as drunk as I want ever. Right. Cause that's too oblivion. And then when I have one, I feel like I can't be present. I'm, it's just more irritating than anything. I stopped drinking and then I graduated college. I did really well because I was dedicated and had a pretty, like I was stable and he was very supportive and and I got a, a really good job in sales and for a technology company that required me to travel and entertain clients. And within my first week of being there, I was getting hammered. They took me to this conference and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is like spring break for adults, you know? But I was really kind of like frustrated and confused because I thought that I had put all those ways behind me, right? Like I thought like, okay, going to church is supposed to fix this. Having this relationship with, you know, Christ is supposed to fix this. And I, I just didn't totally understand that I had alcoholism, right? That this is a fatal progressive disease that doesn't go away with church. For me, I can't treat it with church. I needed a program specific to me and to my disease that would actually treat that. I started doing a lot of really terrible things. I started not coming home at night. Like I started you know, taking weekends, extra weekends when I would be working and I would like go see people and have affairs and like started doing these things that were just absolutely not like, I loved this man a lot. I had no idea that and alcohol and drugs, like I started to do cocaine. I started to get introduced to Adderall, started to get, you know, exposed to things that I wasn't because I wasn't in the partying world in college. And so I didn't actually try cocaine until I was like 26. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my, I finally was like, hey, I got married too young. You got to give me a divorce. I ran off to Mexico with some dude. It was a fucking 
terrible, awful, awful. And it came back and he's like, no, like you're the woman that God made for me. You know, we can get through this. And I just convinced him that I was not and that I needed time. And then I had really nothing holding me back. And so I was able to just become unhinged. At that time, I had landed in my lap this business of uh, an insurance agency that I owned in um, Eagle, Colorado, which is like up in Vail Valley, kind of. We had lived there for two years, and I just couldn't handle it. I, I was starting with my clients. I, you know, I, was, I had no idea how to manage a business. At that point, I think I was like 24 and was just very, I was out of my mind. I just, I had no idea how to do anything. And so I moved back down to Denver and I moved in with my brother who lived very close to my family. I got a really good software job and I started to, they didn't want to give me an opportunity because I didn't have that much experience in that particular field, but I was a business owner and we sold mostly to business owners. And I became one of their top reps and I started to like manage very well, right? So like I could put the alcohol away, but I would still party. And then I started doing bodybuilding on the side. Um, I just wasn't really fulfilled. You know, I, I was like, I had this insatiable thirst, but I didn't really know what it was for. And then like a year later uh, or two years later, this company contacted me that, and the guy I was with uh, was actually asked to go open a branch of the company we were at in Atlanta. And so we moved to Atlanta um, and I went and worked for a nutraceutical company because they needed somebody that looked the part of selling supplements, but also knew business and I knew e-commerce. I knew how to sell online. I, I knew a, a few things about running a business and they, we sold, they sold their supplements mostly to business owners. Like, yeah. So that's really when things went off the rails because I was now in an industry where we had an open bar at our office. You know, we took our clients to strip clubs. I was going back and forth to Vegas, LA, um, several times a month. Really my job was kind of like a booth girl, but also to sell supplements and we had pills and powder everywhere. It was wild. You know, I, I did you compete as a bodybuilder too? Yeah. Oh, so you did the whole nine, like got into yeah. it. competed. Yeah. And everything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was actually able to manage my alcohol. Well, my intake of drugs and alcohol then too, surprisingly, but I think it was because all that energy was totally devoted towards like all the weird stuff that you all have the to weird bodybuilding stuff. Yeah. Right. There's a whole fucking world there. I know. I know. Yeah. It's totally like I'm you're self obsessed. I mean, it's, it's posing, it's working out four hours a day. It's eating. What am I next? When am I going to tan? When am I posing? And like constantly thinking about yourself, which is, you know, really just a, another manifestation of my disease. Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> It worked out beautifully, but I, I was able to like limit the consumption of alcohol and drugs because I was really so dedicated and obsessed there. Kind of like in college when I did running, right? It was just like, where did I, you know, put that energy? It's just like a, a you know, sieve. I mean, I have to put it somewhere. But when I got to Atlanta, you know, I, I started to, Atlanta was wild. I mean, it, there is like Hollywood, but just a lot darker. And I, 
got involved with, there was drugs everywhere. I mean, literally I worked in an industry where pills and powder were everywhere. Right. And the super, it was just a really dark time for me. So I decided after being there for a year that I was going to get back into software because it was the job that was the problem. <laughs> and, uh, I, wanted to live close to my brother. Um, by this time, he had met a really awesome girl. He had one more kid in Colorado, and then he met an awesome girl, and they were married, and they had just had a, a baby. And so I wanted to live close to my brother. They got married at uh, on State Beach in San Clemente, and I was like, this is beautiful. I should definitely live here, right? It's calm. I can get back into software. People won't bother me. And I wrote a letter, excuse me, to myself the, the night I was moving from Atlanta to Orange County. And it was, you know, this is the new beginning. We're going back to church. We are not drinking. We're exercising every day. Like this is, this is the start of a new path. And the next morning, my pod was delivered. I was unpacking it. And these guys walk by with those damn red solo cups <laughs> and my favorite game of all time, cornhole. And like, are you doing? Like, yes. They're like, come on over. And literally that night I'm hooking up with the local drug dealer in the bar and like just was off and running for about another year. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, it was unfortunate because my brother and his family hadn't seen what was really going on, right? They knew that I was not really okay and that I was distant. But, you know, now I live down the street from them and it's, they're seeing, you know, behavior that is like to them. And they're, I mean, I'm like, hey, I'm just partying, you know, I'm having fun. But to them, they're, they're like, there's something wrong with you. And so my brother actually, kind of sat me down September of 2015. And he was like, look, like, you got to figure things out because the way you're going, like, we don't really want you around for the holidays this year. Oh, no. Yeah. And I was really, really in a dark place. I, I was drinking every day, now taking pills every day, Adderall, Xanax. I had lots of doctors. This was before the pharmacies were actually connected. So I could go and get 180 Adderall and I could get a, a prescription. I had a doctor that I would go see in Colorado for 250 bucks. He gave me a prescription for anything I wanted. So yeah, I got, you know, Adderall, Xanax. Even and, opiates like Oxy? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Anything I wanted. I mean, this was 2014, 2013, 2012 even. So yeah. And I just would pay cash because I never had a problem, you know, making money. I was always just had good jobs. I, that's just something my parents, um, hard work. My mom is, you know, always instilled in me, like be self-supporting, which thankfully that's something that I've, you know, it's a gift. So I had all the prescriptions you could want, you know, and was just hiding. My behavior was just erratic. I've had like five engagements at this point to different men You've been um, engaged five different times? Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. For yeah. a second, and then five different engagements, like events that you were supposed to be at. And then oh, I was no. like, oh, no, she means like ring engagements. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so I was uh, really at a place too. I, you know, had two dogs that I absolutely loved. They were my life. And I would take them to San Onofre Beach 
and would just, I had like a bottle of Tito's and was just thinking like, if I killed myself, who would take care of them? Like, is there anyone here? If I just left the dog beach, could somebody take them? And my dogs were my kids. Like I got that Jack Russell. She was in my wedding when I married, you know, Mark, my first husband. I hate saying it like that, but she was my love, my love. I like, I know that you have a dog, so you understand that they're like our kids. I think that they're angels without wings. And I just, I would go to the dog beach and I would be like, if I had just offed myself, is there anyone here that I would like that could take them? Cause I had no family and friends at that point. I'd burnt every bridge and I would still consistently work out at this place called SoCal Boot Camp. And there was this woman there that was just like this light. She was so beautiful. She had four kids of her own. She was adopting two more from Africa was so kind. I didn't really know anything about her except that she gave me her number and I would come in and I would usually come in from the night before, not have slept, kind of bragging about the debauchery or whatever. Um, And some nights I would come in or some mornings I would come in in rough shape and she would just be like, hey, if you ever want to talk. And so finally I used her number one day because I I wanted to kill myself consistently, but I just, I didn't have the balls to do it. I, you know, couldn't really do that to my family and my two dogs at the time. I loved more than life itself. And I was like, I I don't know what to do. And so I met her at Active Cultures, a restaurant here in San Clemente. And I just sat and told her everything. I mean, I was as honest as a drug addict can be. (laughs) So just was told her how I felt that I felt absolutely hopeless that, you know, I became a Christian. I don't understand why I'm still having these problems. And, you know, that I wake up every single day wanting to kill myself. I was on psych meds, because that's a part of my story that, you know, it's just consistently, you know, my family has that in their on their side. It's a chemical imbalance, but I didn't feel like they were working. I was, you know, had a lot of broken relationships that I felt like I was going nowhere and that I wanted to kill myself. And I didn't even really, I don't even know if I mentioned alcohol and drugs, but I was just a blubbering mess. Like I am desperate. Like I will do anything. And she said, the good news is like, I actually know how you felt and that there is a solution. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, and I thought she would, you know, I thought it would be a book. I thought it would be like a doctor, a class, something like, like an easy fix. Like, is there a shot? You know, we're in Orange County. We're pretty progressive. So like, maybe I'm just, I missed this like clinic I'm supposed to go to. Maybe it's another equine or yoga retreat. And she said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was like, fuck off. No, <laughs> no, not doing it. I was like, I guess you don't know that I have a degree. You know, I was such a dick. I was like, I've yeah. gotten a DUI. I've not gone to jail. I don't drink out of a bag. I literally said these things to her. I was like, that, sorry, I don't. I don't think you heard me right. Like that's <laughs> that's hilarious. She yeah. said AA, and I said fuck off. So yeah. you did AA. You knew it was a. You knew. I mean, I think most people have heard of AA, even if your image of it is like a church basement with people with styrofoam cups with coffee, which by the way is, is pretty accurate. But it is it's actually a beautiful thing when you go. So you had heard of it, but you know, didn't think that that was the appropriate solution. Mostly too, because I, 
I felt like I would have to admit that I have an alcohol problem. And that was like the worst of the worst. Like being a drug addict is like kind of cool and taboo. And like, it's also very easy to notice if you're a drug addict, right? Like I had to do, I went to great lengths to get as many drugs as I possibly could. So I never ran out. I had to break a lot of laws to get the things that I wanted to get. Whereas being an alcoholic, again, like if you were sitting with us at our dinner table when I was married and in college and watching all four of us have a glass of wine, you would not have known what was going on up here, you know, to, to actually properly diagnose me as an alcoholic, which is why alcoholism is the only disease that can be self-diagnosed because this crazy head has now lit an obsession that only I know about, right? Yeah. yeah manifest in different ways. And we don't know that. We think that it has something to do with the consequences or the amount of alcohol that we take. It has nothing to do with that. You know, that's, that's really a byproduct. It's more about what happens up here. And, you know, I'm a pretty strong-willed person, so I can white knuckle the shit out of that, right? If someone tells me not to drink, I cannot drink. But my brain was just going crazy. And yeah, I didn't want to admit that I, that I was an alcoholic. That was, that is not cute. <laughs> right. So I have two questions. One, did you break off all the engagements? How would those all end? You would break them off. Yeah. This- yeah. I mean, I, I, I did they all give you a ring. Uh-huh. Did you give the ring back each time? Always. Always. I you always. Did. Okay. All right. Okay. I was just curious about that part. I'm like, do you have five fucking diamond rings somewhere in your house? That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I just is a big part of me. I'm very codependent too. So I would always like latch onto a guy and then build this idea of this amazing life that we should have together. And then, you know, be like, never mind. I don't really want this. The The other question I have is... So I think this is a really interesting and important point that you just said. She said AA and you said, I've never got a DUI. I don't drink that. You know, I'm not drinking from a brown bag because that is what most people think. And I was at that in the end for me, there was no question, but there was a time when I just drank too much and did Coke and hadn't ever been arrested and all that stuff and totally missed my opportunity to stop at that time. What do you think is the marker? If it's not amount, if it's not getting arrest, if it's not an external consequence, what would you suggest someone look for internally? What would that marker be? Hopelessness, wanting to, you know, waking up every day, hoping that it's going to be different. And just like, you know, I would, I would tell myself today, today's it. Today is the day I am picking my sobriety date. It's today you know, and I would by noon either have popped a pill or, you know, snuck into the the freezer for that vodka, rationalize, uh, it's not today, it's tomorrow. And then just like the book says, like, well, I might as well get good and drunk because I already messed it up. I've already broken the promise to myself. And, you know, the book says that if you try to stop and you can't, or you try to control it and you can't, you might be an alcoholic. And in my you know, experience, anything that I try to control usually has control over me, right? If I'm trying to control something, it's because it already has control over me, right? I like that. 
Okay, so you're sitting with her and she says AA, and then where do we go from there? When do you actually go? Well, the next morning she says there's a 6.30 a.m. meeting every day. And I said, well, that's when we do our workout. (laughs) I can't miss that. And she said, no, no, honey, your sobriety is the most important thing for you right now. Like you have to put that first. Anything else that you put in front of it, you're going to lose anyways. So she said, you need to put it first in your day and put it first in your life. And so I went to, in San Clemente, there's something called the Friendship Center. It's actually a really good meeting for me because it's called What's Good About Today. Very positive about gratitude. There's not a lot of program discussion in there, right? So it's almost, it felt like AA light, you know? still identified as alcoholics, but there was not talk of sponsorship or steps. It was what's good about today. You go around the room and you say, hey, I'm an alcoholic. Today's amazing because of X, Y, and Z. So I didn't have as much of a problem with that. Although the first like few times I went, I was judgmental. I sat in the back. I was like, this is stupid. I don't do you, did you guys all come here together? Cause I know you don't have cars, <laughs> you know, just like the worst. Yeah. Actually, actually, I have another question too then. So if you said to her at dinner, I didn't get a DUI, I'm not going, maybe you misunderstood me, but you went the next day. What did she say? How did she convince you to go anyway? How did she end that conversation with you? All she said was, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So she literally said, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And all I knew is that I had tons of therapists I had tried the yoga retreats. I had tried the equine therapy. I had tried the stack of self-help books. I had tried the podcast and the Tony Robbins and, you know, all of the things. And I was still winding up in the same place. So I was so desperate and, you know, gift of of desperation, God, that I was willing. I was like, she's not wrong. You know, I just, I wanted to change my life. I wasn't convinced about the sobriety thing. I really wasn't not at all convinced. And thank God for tradition three that says that all we have to do is have a desire to stop drinking. Because if you have to identify as an alcoholic in order to go to AA, I would not have gone. You know, I, I wouldn't have it there. But what happened was I started to get some relief in those meetings. I would feel like, okay, I can relate to that person. And you know, I would come back and they remembered me. I was welcome at that point. I wasn't welcome anywhere. You know, it felt good. It felt good to be recognized. It felt good to be wanted. It felt good to, you know, be in a place where, I mean, I had been so alone and so lonely for so long that it was this like fellowship that brought me in. And, you know, she would just say, when people invite you places, say yes. Like your new rule is say yes. So like girls would be like, you want to go get coffee? And I'm like, ugh, yes, I guess. Right. And it was so uncomfortable because I did not want to have to connect. I did not want to have to be, you know, I've been hiding for so long and didn't know who I was. And the best advice she ever gave me was just say yes. And so I would, you know, get involved in, um, you know, I remember we went camping our first year and did like all of these things that I never would have done, um, you know, sober. And I really didn't want to do because it's so uncomfortable, but honestly made the biggest difference because I 
got out of my own skin. Like contrary action, they say that first year, contrary action to everything because my go-to is nope, defense mechanism. Like I've been doing it 31 years like this. I am absolutely not going to do it like that. And then she's like, okay, well, if that's your go-to, then let's change it because it's clearly serving you like you're wrong. <laughs> and so maybe let's try the exact opposite of what you're used to. And I mean, I, it's so weird to have doing so much work on myself, have, have done all of the self-diagnosis and the therapy and all of these courses. And then I come into AA for free and I learn uh, like about my, who I am at a cellular level in a week. Right. By listening to other people. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. It's divine. It's amazing. It's divine. It was divinely ordered and created, I believe. So that morning, that's your sobriety date. You never drank or used again. No. So I thought that Alcoholics Anonymous was just about alcohol. Okay. So <laughs> still okay. had uh, the pills and the powder. And oh, okay. uh, that I didn't. You did like, coke sober? No, no I, way. I didn't. No, I okay. didn't. Okay. 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 No, but I did have like some, I really, Adderall was a big problem for okay. me. Okay. And so was Xanax. And then because of that, I was highly addicted to sleeping pills. Okay. So I was getting into, I thought I was going to do the steps myself because that's who I am. <laughs> I was like not totally sold on the steps, but the Halloween of 2015 is when I finally was like, Hey, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Right. I got, and so I dumped all my pills. All right. So November 1st, 2015 is my actual sobriety date, but like the drink was um, September 9th, 2015. But okay. my sobriety date is the 1st of November. Oh, so we're coming up on your eight years. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I'm yeah. 2015 also, January 15th, I 2015. Know. I know. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. So, okay. Because you have another really cool story that I heard on another podcast. Okay. I love this, which is what happened like right after you got sober when you met that guy. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little? Sure. Yeah. So I was going to this meeting religiously. I had this woman that had, I call her my Eskimo, right? She brought me into the program, but again, she had four kids, two of her own. She was a nurse. She was, or four kids, two that she was adopting and she was a nurse and really wasn't super involved in AA. So she like said, Hey, you should do this. But as far as like working the steps, she said she would be my temporary sponsor. So I was pretty much sponsorless for the first like 90 days. I would check in with her and, you know, do the things, but we weren't really working the steps. And I wasn't on the whole, I thought the fellowship was AA. Right. <laughs> I, you know, there weren't people like you out there um, sharing that, you know, the fellowship is not the program that we're humans, right? This is the fellowship is where we rally and talk about the miracles that we're experiencing because of the inner work that we're doing through the 12 steps. But a guy came in to my morning meeting, stuck out like a sore thumb. He had just gotten out of rehab. Um, I didn't even know what rehab was, by the way. I basically was, she told me that if I couldn't stop drinking or using for a week that I should check into inpatient. And I was like totally mortified by that. I had no, no friends that have ever been to rehab. I stayed on her couch a few nights and kind of just detoxed that way. But 
I was more scared to go to rehab than anything. And so when this guy says he got out of rehab, I didn't really know that much about it. He had done 30 days in Prescott, Arizona. And we talked, he shared in our morning meeting, he's, you know, good looking dude, professional golfer or semi pro. And he asked me to breakfast the next morning. And I said, sure, not knowing that that's like really not okay. And we both showed up to the morning meeting. Then we went to breakfast. He put his hand on mine and he's like, you're going to be my wife. And I was like, I know. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, I really truly believed that it was the promises. He was a Christian guy. My dad is a very big golfer. He's been trying to get me into golf forever. And so I was like, oh my gosh, my dad is going to be so proud of me and bringing home a professional golfer. Because you guys got married soon after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. He proposed to me two weeks later. And then we went to the courthouse um, after knowing each other for three weeks. Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) what ended up happening? Because you're not married to him right now. No, no. Um, What um, happened? Well, so I was not um, really that honest with that sponsor that was helping me at the time, you know, but he, um, I mean, the short and the short story is that he would like go teach golf lessons and stuff. And he, he was like a chronic relapser and I had no idea. And one night he came home and was like, Oh, I stopped and had like a couple beers. And I was like, what? And then we were on a trip with his family. We went to Guatemala um, for his sister's wedding that following Christmas. So I like get sober to spend Christmas with my family and I marry this guy and go to Guatemala out of nowhere. And he says in the back of this like huge bus that we're driving because her drive like $20,000, we have to have armed guards following us. And she's marrying like this guy in Guatemala. He's like, yeah, I think I could drink again. I think <laughs> this was all just like a big misunderstanding. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, like what a nightmare. And then like we got home like two weeks later and he landed in a pile of Coke and didn't come home for like two or three days. Oh shit. <laughs> I, I was like mortified. I was like, oh my God, family hates me. Right. And I have now made this tremendous decision that we were very like outspoken about in our morning meeting, like, Hey, we're married. And like, idiot, you know, like, but I thought it was the promises. I thought, you know, I thought and, uh, that is actually what broke me because I had never kind of like you never been on the other side, a much different scenario. I've never would, you know, I didn't know this. We, we had only been together like four or five months at that point, but I, you know, I was very, I thought I was very active, um, in AA, I would go to meetings every day, but I wasn't working the steps. And so he left and I was like, I wanted to drink, you know, I, I was like, this hurts too bad. Like, I don't know how to handle this. And I would go to meetings and I had this, um, these group of girls be like, Hey, Cause I would just sob in every meeting and they're like, you need a sponsor here. They put me in touch with their sponsor. I started working the steps. I started, um, getting really involved in AA and actually like doing the deal. And, you know, finally like had 
it was still really hard because in one of the hardest things this sponsor did, because I was like, I want to divorce him. This needs to be over. I want it to go away. And she's like, uh-uh, you need to sit in this. Like you need to sit and, and look at how you just played God and you made very impulsive decisions. She's like, you're not going to go make another impulsive decision, right? Like you need to think about what you're doing here. And we did inventory on it and, you know, it was really uncomfortable for a long time. Um, like probably 90 days and, you know, he kept wanting to come back and then he'd leave and come back. And it was just so, so crazy. But, you know, I see the, the temptation that people get into when they get sober because we can have a spiritual experience from a human being, right? Like I, a man can make me feel or not feel just as much as alcohol and drugs can, you know? And I really look at that when I came in because I, you know, thought it was about the substances and it's not, you know, it's, it's that I'm a broken human and I I've been given these messages and I have this disease that tells me that that is going to make me whole or that's going to make me whole or that's going to make me whole. And the only thing that's ever actually worked for me is the 12 steps. And it, spiritual program of action that I have to apply every single day. Like not something that I can wake up with and be like, Oh my gosh, I get to take today off. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like I was not that type of drug addict. I wasn't that type of alcoholic. I sure as shit can't be that kind of sober alcoholic. Right. I do this thing every day. I wake up, I pray, I meditate. I have sponsees. I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. I work with active, you know, I work with addicts and alcoholics And, you know, the biggest thing is my attitude is now thy will be done, you know, rather than me trying to run the show, constantly manipulate and manage everybody else. And and my life, it's like, okay, God, what what are we doing today? Right. So let me ask you about that, because that's been one of like the most challenging aspects of this for me is the idea of turning something over, turning something over. Like, what does that mean? Because it doesn't mean you're going to just like not open your business. It doesn't mean you're not going to work out, which obviously you still do. You do all these adventures, right? Like we're on this today. So what does it mean to you to wake up and say, okay, whatever you want me to do today? Because then you get in your car and you drive somewhere and you do go to work. So like, what does that mean for you? Really? I think it's more the attitude, right? Of like, I'm not in charge of the results. You know, that like I will do God's will. I think turning it over is kind of, it's so overused. Like we are so obsessive to tell me to turn something over is a joke, right? Like totally, I can do that for a millisecond, but then what do I do? And what that means is I have to just shift everything. I need to go and I need to pour myself into other people, right? Because more of them, less of me is a much happier place for me. So, you know, I think that like, we're so fortunate today. We have rehabs everywhere. There are so many people that need to know that there is a solution that like when my sponsees don't have sponsees, I'm like, why, why are you, they used to go into the hospitals and call and say, who can I help? Right. We have AA meetings and HA meetings and we have rehabs and inpatient and outpatient like you there we are so fortunate that newcomers are everywhere that is drug today that is your insurance policy to stay sober like if you're not helping someone here in southern california you are not looking because they're literally on our doorstep 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for you, it involves service for others and that keeps you in God's will. Cause obviously you've done a lot in the eight years, like this wise and life wise. Have you ever got, have you gotten engaged again in the eight years? Oh yeah. Cause you're married. No, okay. no, no, not now. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. My business partner and I actually get engaged. We tried to do the romantic, like it, we could never like make the romantic work, which was very strange. Um, we met in an AA meeting on our first date. We started talking about how cool it would be to have a rehab together and to work with addicts. And that like when on his one year birthday in AA, like he and I went to Vegas together. Like we're all about like having fun and being free and never do that in like using and how cool life just began. And so like, you know, we were very aligned when it came to business and what our goals were, but we could never figure out the romantic thing. It was just like, always like, it was just glitchy, you know? And like, we could treatment as a, you know, our business is 24 hours a day. So we poured ourselves into it. And then over COVID kind of hoped like, okay, let's get engaged and maybe that will like fix this. And we just called it quits after being together for about four years. Our businesses had for two. That was a really scary thing because we both loved, you know, we have 20, at that time we had like 20 employees. All of them are family to us. It felt like mom and dad were breaking up, you know, and like what's so going to guys split as business partners also, yeah. or you still run the, yeah. okay. Okay. So okay we got was like, you sit in your corner, you sit in your corner for six months. Like, just don't, let's just try to get through this, not make any major decisions. And, you know, through that, we've like now have such a much better relationship because we're where we're supposed to be in our lives. Like he just had, a, you know, I talked to his girlfriend every day on, you know, through messenger on Instagram and like, I'm like still friends with his family when you run a business with somebody, it's, I mean, that's very intimate. So yeah, like we're always be a part of each other's lives. I have a boyfriend now we've been together a little over a year, Colorado, and he, he moved out here in January. Oh, cool. And he has a five-year-old. He's actually a plane right now, getting her and bringing her back here. So I'm stepmom. Also something I did not ever, like, I would never date a guy with kids ever. And, you know, He's changed everything for me. I love being a stepmom. I love this little girl more than I ever thought I could. I want to be a mom myself one day. And, you know, yeah, but I, you know, I'll be 40 in December, which is crazy, but I feel like I'm reverse aging and (laughs) it starts to feel weird though. Right. Okay. So I'm 43 and I had always chosen, I didn't want kids ever. And I still mostly don't, but occasionally. Yeah. Like, ah, should I still? Yeah. 43, you know what I mean? I'm like, let's be realistic about this. I don't, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's not possible anymore, I guess for me, for you, it would be 40 for sure, but 43, you know, I don't know. And then also obviously with my husband relapsing and all his bullshit, you know, but then there are some times when I think like, this is actually really dark, but like, cause what he does could kill him. I think like if he does, God forbid, pass away, I want his kid. You know what I mean? I would want to have had a piece of Skylar still here, you know? But then my mom has been like, but then Janine, you'd be like a widow raising this child that would look just like him. That could be heartbreaking, you know? But so I think about like the kid thing too, you know, and kind of like have gone back and forth about that. I'm like 99% no, 1% yes. And I've kind of always been that way. But so you do, you do want kids. Yeah, for okay. sure. 
but I'm also really, really driven (laughs) and having to step away from my businesses or, I mean, it's just a, you know, I, I, like right now I'm at a place where, you know, me and this guy are, you know, looking at taking the next step and really, you know, he asked my parents if he could marry me, which, you know, of course they've had that conversation before, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I, I'm like at the point where I do want a kid and I, it's just weird. Like I, I, there are people that I have friends that have always wanted to be moms and they're like, that's all they've wanted. And they want a litter. And I'm like, no, I want, you know, I want to help people and I want a career and I want all of this stuff. I think one or two would be amazing. And people are like, it'll change once you have a kid, like your whole life will change. And I'm like, I just feel like God made me to help people that's and animals. That's like, and so I don't really, I think I'm getting closer to the point where it's like, okay, I could see myself taking some time off or I can see myself, you know, making this happen. I mean, I would, it's going to be a sacrifice either way. Like find him with somebody where I could actually see like, okay. And we have like a family, you know, his little girl come and it's the coolest thing ever. I love being her stepmom, and I have a really good relationship with her mom and we're like, you know, I can't only imagine how much more special it'll be with my own little girl or my own little boy. Right. The other thing that kind of jumps into my, my head too, a little bit, I don't know if it does for you is, you know, you're still in fitness, obviously you're super fit. Do I think sometimes too, I'm like, bro, I don't think I want to be pregnant though. Yeah. Yeah. And my boyfriend's quite less now for the first time ever in my whole life. I'm like, "Ah, so, so my body changes. A little. Who cares? And I never would have said that before in my entire life. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's that's a big thing. And my boyfriend's like a bodybuilder and like incredibly hot and fit. And so <laughs> I'm like, uh, uh, and he's ten years younger. So that's like always a a thing. Um, my husband is seven years younger than me. Okay. That's yeah. So we're so similar. So many of the things that you've said, we're like the same person, even like the boyfriend that you met in the restaurant, Yeah, you know, mine was like 22 and not a Christian at all, but he really changed my life. Yeah. So many, so many similarities. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, you said something on another, on another podcast that I heard you talk about, which was like the tools of recovery that you've been given that now help you manage life. What tools of recovery, what methods of managing like a crisis or stress would you say have been like the most valuable that you could share with us? Like principles of the program or things that you do when you're in a crisis or stress that you got directly as a result of AA? Man, you know, probably as well as I do, that's so hard to like narrow it down. I would say one thing that I always really like that's different for me is that I would always wish for like, and I would write these goals and I would do these things, but I would never have any action behind it. Right. And so I'm learning through, I've learned through this program that like nothing changes by like prayer alone. Like it has to have some action behind it. Right. Which is why we do like the fourth and fifth step. Right. That's like our first, like real, like push and action of like, okay, God, I'm, doing this, like, here's all my stuff. Let's look at, you know, my inventory and let me tell somebody else, which is awful and humiliating. But like, this is, I just told you in the third step that I'm giving, you know, my, my will of my life over to you. And then here's like some action behind it, right? There's a reason that it stop at step three. 
that, you know, there's this whole, you know, succession of actions that bring us to this beautiful life. And that I, for so long, just kind of hoped and wished that things would be different, but that everything comes down to action, that the only wrong action to me is no action when you want to change your life. Like staying same is not an option anymore, right? And when people really want to make a true change, they're going to be like, all right, I'll try it. Let's do it. You know, having an open mind of maybe I don't know, maybe I actually know nothing. <laughs> That's weird for people like us who have, you know, have like are fairly intelligent and have had some success in other areas of our life to admit, like, maybe I don't know. Maybe there is actually something to this. Like, thank goodness I had a tiny bit of willingness that I was going to go to that first meeting and that I didn't just walk out of that restaurant when she said, go to AA. Like, my entire life changed when I overcame the fear that this thing that actually was true became true. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I love that. That's one of my, my, one of the things that I talk about a lot is I'm so grateful for the whole, all of it, the whole shebang, the addiction, the, you know, being homeless, jail, all that because of what it gave me. Do you feel that way as well? Are you glad, like if you could go back and do it again, would you say, yep, check the box. That makes me an alcoholic because I want this life on the other side. hundred percent. Yeah. I'm not grateful today because I have all of the things that I've ever wanted and more. Like I'm not a grateful alcoholic because of those things. I'm truly a grateful alcoholic because I have alcoholism. And if I didn't have this, I wouldn't have had this path. You know, I'm convinced that I have a better relationship today with my family. I have a better relationship today with myself. I have a better relationship today with God because I am an alcoholic. Because it forced me to do this work and to continually do this work. And it just keeps getting better. You know, like I don't stay in AA and I don't go to meetings and HA is actually my fellowship too. Oh, Um, cool. Okay. Yeah. I don't stay here because it's cool and trendy and convenient. Like it's not. Like every Wednesday I have a meeting at my house. It's super inconvenient actually to go to meetings eventually. You know what I mean? Like I'm just now finally going back because, you know, my husband's losing his ass. I'm like, all right, I need to help. We'll both go. We'll both go. I think we're going to get a commitment on Saturday. Once we're going, I get back into it, but it's wildly inconvenient sometimes, like you said. I mean, that's how you know it's working though. Like I'm not doing it because it's fun. I'm doing it because it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> and at almost eight years, I'm, you know, I still like call my sponsor and pray and meditate. And I do the things that got me from day zero to one because this, they work, right? And it's like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a blueprint. If you want an amazing life, if you want a relationship with God, and if you want to recover from your drinking and drug problem, the big book has all of your information, right? Yeah. But it's, or I needed you guys to show me how to apply that information because <laughs> I, I could get it, right? I could retain it. I'm, I'm a, you know, fairly intelligent person. I'm, you know, I can read the information. It's just like, I didn't know how to apply it. So I needed, you know, the fellowship to be like, hey, this is what we do. We show up to birthday parties. We put our hand out. We introduce ourselves to people we don't know. Like when somebody needs a ride or you ask somebody how they're doing today, get out of self, do these small little things that I didn't understand actually like we're keeping me sober on a daily basis, but also make me a good human. What type of meditation do you do? 
Sometimes I do guided. I'm a huge Joe Dispenza fan. I don't know if you know him. I was literally listening to Joe Dispenza on Lewis Howell's show earlier when you and I were texting. I was at the gym too. Again, we're like actually the same person because you were like, are you getting in this workout? And then I'll see you in an hour. And I was like, I am literally doing the same thing. And I was listening to Joe Dispenza. So that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Changed my whole view of meditation. Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I try to do as much of that, even just sometimes meditation is just, you know, sitting quietly. I built like a meditation, like Zen dens to make like meditate. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, something that is, it's just a daily practice. Sometimes it's just like going to the gym. It feels like this is stupid. I don't know why I'm here. I don't even know if this is working, but I'm just going to do it because I need to. And then there's sometimes where I have like an actual experience with meditation. And it's like, this is, this is why I just, all you have to do is show up, you know? Well, thank you so much for yeah. your time and for meeting with me. Where can everybody find you and your recovery centers? Yeah. You're so sweet. So my Instagram handle is SoCalCat, S-O-C-A-L-K-A-T-T-T, three T's. And our- all cats with only one T? Is that why you did that? I think so. I don't know. Okay. It, okay. But I have the blue check mark now, so we can well, stop. there you go. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's some um, pretenders out there. I pretended for a month and then I fucking quit paying for it because I felt like an idiot. You know how you- the thing, or you mean they're pretending with your name, SoCal Cat? You know, I would get like people all the time, like, oh, this person says it's you. They're asking me to send right. them. Money. I thought you meant the verification because you know, like, you can pay for it or whatever, which is valuable. And I did it for like a month, and then I had a couple of friends give me such a hard time that I was like, fine, fine, which is so oh. embarrassing to even admit to Nodpod that's listening. But yes, I paid for the check mark for one month of my life. That's- there's nothing wrong with that. I actually do it for chasing heroin because sometimes my reels that are funnier and do well or my TikToks, people will repost without my thing. And so for that reason, I might actually do it for the business page yeah. for chasing heroin. But I had done it for mine, which only has like 2,000 followers. And it's like, dude, what are you fucking doing? <laughs> Anyways, okay. So where can people find your for real verified Instagram page? So, so CalCat. Verified. And then our Laguna Shores uh, recovery.com is where you'll see facility in our houses. And I have a link to that in my bio too. So where can I find you? What's your chasing heroin? Chasing heroin. And then Janine Coulter, just my name is mine as well. Okay. Yeah. Where's your new home group? It will be the Saturday HA in Oceanside where we've started to go again. It was, there was a Friday night HA meeting. Yeah. Um, the Step House in Lucadia. That meeting changed my life. That meeting really changed my life because I had done NA. I've actually never, I bet I've only ever been to 20 AA meetings total, but I've been to a ton of NA and a lot of HA. And starting when I started going to HA, it really completely changed my life. And I felt like really connected in that community. And yeah, so that was my home group. And then it will be, that's a good question, Saturdays. But I've had my strongest link, I think, to the program. And what's kept me really consistent is I've had the same sponsor for, so I almost have nine years, like 10 years, because she saw me through like some relapses. And I've called her very consistently for 10 years. So obviously I worked all 12 steps twice. And then all did I say 10 or 12? I feel like I just said 10. I said 12, right? I think so. I I feel like I said 10. No, yeah. I was not. If I said 10, take that out. You got me all caught up because I was like, wait, we both have the same sobriety date, 2015. 
said 10 years, but then I'm like doing math over here. Also, yeah, so because it's the very beginning of 2015, so we'll be nine years in a few Um, But she's, you know, saw me through a couple of relapses. And so I call her really, really, really consistently and have always been, and she's like, she has all, she speaks to me on like a different level, you know, and like is very program connected. And so I feel like even through COVID, while I owned my business and all that stuff, I definitely wasn't going to meetings during that time, but I was calling her all the time. So that has kept me pretty like connected to program. And then, like I said, I think we're going to get a commitment at this meeting there. They need some. So yeah, I think we're going to go this week and do it. So cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so fun.